Let's return today uh, to our text just by way of introduction. When the Lord Jesus Christ arrived on earth, it's pretty safe to assume that nobody knew really how to respond, at least at first. Even his earliest disciples, when they rejoiced, they told their friends, we found the Messiah. They were excited about this. But they had no way of knowing that their initial hopes would be dashed. The reasons for this is because the common Jewish expectation of the Messiah was that he was coming in power and in might to bring military dominance, economic prosperity, and political peace. And the Old Testament scriptures are replete with texts to affirm this expectation. Many of the Psalms pointed, or excuse me, painted this picture of the coming Messiah. Let me just read to you a selection from Psalm 72. This is just one example. Psalm 72, Give the king your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your afflicted with justice. Let the mountains bring peace to the people and the hills in righteousness. May he vindicate the afflicted of the people, save the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. Let the fear of you while the sun endures, as long as the moon throughout all generations, may he come down like rain upon the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish and abundance of peace till the moon is no more. Again, just one of many selections. The psalmist continues in Psalm 72, noting the dominion of the Messiah. He would, uh, that would include the destruction of the people, the deliverance of the people from the oppressor, the advance of prosperity, uh, the flourishing of Zion, the blessing of the Lord on the, all the earth, the utter dominance of the Lord God in His full glory. We also see this expectation in Psalm 110, which is the most famous messianic psalm in the entire collection. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Then he says, the Lord will rule in the midst of his enemies and he will shatter the kings of his day with his wrath. Again, the subversion of Israel's enemies was supposed to usher in peace in Israel as well as over the entire world as Messiah reigned globally. Isaiah even prophesied about this when Israel was going to receive their, the son. The government was going to rest on his shoulders. And then Isaiah says this in chapter uh, 9, verses 6 and 7, his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, and there will be no end to the increase of his government or of his peace. Of the peaceful climate of his kingdom, Isaiah later says in chapter 11 that the conditions in this kingdom, this peaceful kingdom, he says the lion will lay down with the lamb and the little boy will lead them. Then he says this, the nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra and they will not be hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So he's basically illustrating, and he says this in many different places, the kingdom is going to be so peaceful that even animals wouldn't attack in all things, all the created order, humanity and the the further created order, all things would be in full subjection to the Lord God. Ezekiel speaks of this peaceful reality in Ezekiel 38.8. He says, In the later years... You will come into the land that is restored from the sword, whose inhabitants have been gathered from many nations, the people who were brought out of from, from the nations, and they are living securely, all of them. Living securely. Peace. There's going to be a, a gathering of people, and all peoples will live in peace. Zechariah 9.9. 9. 
which speaks of the first advent of Christ uh, coming as king on the back of a donkey, which is where we get that prophecy when Jesus actually comes into uh, Jerusalem on the back of a, of a donkey. The very next verse in Zechariah's prophecy talks about the worldwide hope of peace and dominance. He says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem and the bow of war will be cut off and he will speak peace to the nations and his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So verse after verse passage after passage, filling the minds and the hearts of the people with the hope that when Messiah comes, when he arrives on this planet, he's going to establish a dominant, prosperous, and ultimately peaceful kingdom in Israel. So much so that when Jesus died and he rose again, before he ascended and went back to the heavens, the final question, you can note this in in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, The final question they ask Jesus before he goes back is, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? So when are you going to do it, Lord? When are you going to overthrow our enemies and establish your reign and bring about peace for us and for all the nations? Again, it was so ingrained in their consciousness that it was hard for them to accept any other reality. But Jesus would instruct his disciples that he came to earth for a different mission. He's here for a different reason. The first arrival was not for domination, but for salvation. And his disciples, they would have to be prepared to follow him while living in a world that hated them. But Christ has called us to follow at a great cost. He's He's called them and he's called us to follow as well. So with that in mind, turn to Matthew chapter 10 in your copy of Scripture. We're working in Matthew 10 right now. And if you've been following along too, we're really building in this exposition as Jesus is building in his uh, teaching the words that he has to the disciples. Chapter 10, Matthew's recorded the instructions that Jesus gives to his disciples. These are instructions that are meant for their uh, missionary journey that comes in the immediate future. They're about to be sent out to the region of Galilee to minister in all the towns. But he's also speaking a little bit past that. He goes beyond their immediate journey and begins to speak to future realities as well. And starting right around verse 16, Jesus begins to, to shift his focus a little bit from the immediate context to a more future context. And so I don't want to say this is a double fulfillment kind of a thing, but there is another level to his, his uh, predictive uh, words, if you would. He promises the disciples that they would endure intense persecution on account of his name, but they're not to worry. Don't be anxious. Don't be afraid. Not only will Jesus endure all of this by himself, but the Lord is going to give help to those who are enduring suffering for him. But enduring hardship for the cause of Christ, that is all part of discipleship. All of us as disciples of Christ. If you're a Christian, if you've been born again by faith, by the grace of Christ, and you're born again to a new life, but that new life is going to include hardship. If someone led you to Christ and they said, oh, your life is going to get better, well, maybe in some regard, but there will also be hardship. There'll be persecution. There'll be difficulty for you. And so I want to apologize to you if you've been misled that it's going to be a life of ease. It's challenging. It's going to be difficult. It is difficult. And Christian discipleship, part of that is enduring such hardship. And if we understand that Christian discipleship 
is learning to be like Jesus Christ, and we know that it is, then we further understand that we are also to learn to suffer with him. But toward the end of Matthew 10, Jesus gives several key imperatives. He's building, sort of preparing them for persecution, preparing them for suffering, and then he really lands the end of Matthew 10 with these key imperatives, and they come one after another. Called it the disciples' confession, where Jesus declares again Matthew 10, 30, let's see, 32 and 33. I'm in Mark 10. How did I get there? Matthew 10, 32 and 33. Jesus says, Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. So, a key part of belonging to Christ is confessing Christ. And again, we talked about that two weeks ago, that we are, we are called to confess him, to, to bear witness to him with our, with our mouth, with our profession, but also with our testimony and our life and the way that we live. Of course, this will always, not always be met with the kindness of other people. This is why Jesus doubles down with his next exhortation, moving really beyond mere confession. He says it's not enough to simply say that you believe in Jesus Christ. It actually moves now into genuine affection. Look at with, with me in Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 to 37. That'll be our text for today, 34 to 37. Jesus is continuing after this confession part, and he says, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now there are a couple things happening, I believe, in this text. But I also think that there, uh, the, all this is working together really to illustrate one key idea. And we're going to see this kind of play out in different in different. Uh, compartments, if you will, of this text, but I'm calling this message the disciples' consecration. The disciples' consecration. We're going to see why very shortly. Three times in verses 34 and 35, Jesus makes this reference to his journey to earth. He talks about, he says it, he says, I came, and then he says, I did not come, and then he says again, I came. He's referencing coming from heaven to earth. This is not the language of a person who has uh, come into existence at their birth but one who has pre-existent before heaven and earth were even formed. We understand that just like with the Father and with the Spirit, the Son, the Son of God, Jesus, the Messiah, He is eternal. He is coexistent with the Father and the Son. He's of the same substance, as the old creeds used to say. And in the Incarnation, the infinite God took on a finite body and He lived here on earth as the God-man. Again, truly God and truly man, two natures in one, that is Jesus Christ. And the question is, well, why did he come to earth? Why did he come here? Again, the Jews believed that he had come to overthrow Israel's enemies and to establish the kingdom on earth. Again, a kingdom of peace and a kingdom of prosperity that was brought about by dominance. He's going to come in, he's going to march into the city, he's going to overthrow the Romans or whoever else is oppressing them, and he was going to set up their flag and say, this is it, I'm the king now, and everything else is going to be in subjection. So they were waiting for this. Even today, it's very interesting. 
really flipping this on its head. Even today, religious liberals will tell you that Jesus came to earth to teach peace and tolerance, never to judge anybody, never to demand anything of his followers. So everybody on all sides of the spectrum have gotten this wrong about why Jesus came to earth. He did not come with with dominance to overthrow and to wipe out enemies. He did not come simply preaching peace and tolerance and, and goodwill and charity to no expense. Why did Jesus come? Well, the text gives light to that and destroys any false notion about him. Look at it again at verse 34. Again, I'm kind of going back in my mind here to the, to the idea that, well, Jesus, my, my Jesus is a loving Jesus. He doesn't judge anybody. He doesn't hurt anybody. It's just about peace and tolerance. Look at verse 34. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. The words do not think are meant to alter pre-existing beliefs. It says, though he's saying this, I know you've thought one way about me, but let me alter your thinking right now. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. Now immediately we're struck with some curiosity, aren't we? Wait a second. Because remember, the angel, didn't the angel come to the shepherds in the field in Luke 2 and say that the arrival of the Savior is going to bring peace on earth and goodwill toward men? Isn't that the songs we sing about around Christmas? That Jesus, gentle and lowly and mild and all these things, isn't He bringing peace? Yes, except that peace and goodwill don't come in the way that you would expect. It's not a general, common, worldwide peace. He's not some sort of supercharged UN ambassador bringing peace and goodwill to the entire world. Rather, it's a peace that we receive that comes from God, those who are reconciled to God through the death, the bloody cross death of Christ. That's how the peace comes. And where does this sort of land here? Because of our sins, God is at war with us. We don't want to talk about that today, do we? Nobody wants to hear that. That God is at war with you over your sin. You tell people that God is angry at at you because of your sin, people will shut you out, they'll cancel you. How dare you? How dare you be so hateful to say that God is angry at me because of the things you say I'm doing wrong? But God is angry over sin. His wrath burns, the Bible says, over sinfulness. But the good news, the gospel, the gospel is not that God's angry. The gospel is that even in the midst of that and in our sinful condition, Jesus was sent to the earth. He came to this earth to live a perfect life and to give his life and to die to pay the penalty for sins. That's the good news. That he came and gave his life and died for us so that all those who desire to be reconciled to God would have the ransom paid and peace could be restored. The good news is that even though, yes, God is holy and your sin puts you at war with him, and all of us in our former condition, our natural condition, are wretched in God's sight, even though we were enemies of God, the Bible says, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. That God brings peace to individuals, to you and I, through the cross, through the sacrifice of Christ. And it's in that sacrifice that our sins are paid, and now we can have our relationship restored to God. And then he looks on us as beloved children, adopted into his family, 
The Bible says in Romans 8, 1, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. My friends, that is a bomb to the soul. That is good news. That brings joy and strength to the bones. That enlivens the heart. Romans 5, 1, therefore having been justified by faith. Why do we sing all about faith earlier and hear the scriptures we heard? Because that's the core of the gospel. That is the thing the reformers said on which all of the gospel turns is justification by faith, that you come to God by faith in Christ. We have been justified by faith, and because we have been, he says, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The war is over for you if you've been reconciled through Christ. God doesn't see you as an enemy anymore. He doesn't hold angst against you. He's not angry with you. He still hates the sin that you commit, but he knows it's been paid for in his son. We have peace with God. It's a real peace. It's a real and true peace. It is a heavenly peace, however. It's a spiritual peace. It's an invisible peace. It's a relational peace. And the peace of God is granted to believers, but it's not extended in the same way to those in the world who have no regard for him. When Jesus comes to earth and he brings peace, the peace of God to his people, that doesn't go to the entire world. Now the gospel goes to the entire world, but don't just think that because Jesus has arrived here and you know that he's existed that you're off the hook. He still maintains wrath and anger for the fallen world, the world that he plans to judge in what is known as the day of the Lord. God will judge the nations. And so Jesus isn't denying the peace that believers experience with God in salvation. If anything, he affirms that. My peace I leave to you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives to you. So therefore, don't let your heart be troubled. Don't be afraid. Jesus, my friends, brings peace to those who have been reconciled to God through his death and resurrection. But in this context here, he's denying the belief that he came to earth to make everything peaceful and prosper and pleasant. He says, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now, the initial reaction by some is that sword, you mean judgment? Are you going to come and start killing people? No, no. And while Jesus does possess all judgment, according to John 5.22, that's not what he's talking about in the context. The context, sword is a symbol of conflict. And understood in verse 35, you look at verse 35. The Greek word that's translated against, when he says in verse 35, I came to set a man against his father. The Greek, uh, dixadzo, literally means to cut in two, to rend asunder. It's, It's a complete division and separation. That's what the word against here means. So he's not coming to destroy the way that we might think, at least not yet. Rather, he's coming to divide. Jesus is coming to divide. And if you're questioning that, Luke 12, 49 through 53, there's a parallel passage here where Jesus says this, I have come to cast fire upon the earth. And then he says a few phrases later, I did not come to grant peace, but rather division. Jesus came to divide. I don't like that. That's what he's here for. That's what he came for. Well, the question then is, okay, what is he dividing then? Because now I'm nervous What is Jesus dividing? The answer, people. People. Look at verses 35 and 36. 
For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. Now we see that Jesus is quoting here from Micah 7.6. In fact, turn with me to Micah. It's in the Old Testament, just a couple books back before the New. It's one of the minor prophets. It's pretty small. Micah. The prophet Micah is writing 700 years before Christ. He's issuing a warning of God's judgment on Samaria and Jerusalem who had gone wayward. Micah, in his prophecy, warns of the coming wrath of God. Yet in doing so, he also announces deliverance through the coming king. And we're going to see this very quickly here. If you were to just flip your pages over to Micah chapter 5, 5 2 is pretty famous. It's quoted in the New Testament. It's actually quoted in Matthew. We read this verse oftentimes around Christmas. But in Micah 5 2, he's prophesying to, to Israel and he says, But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, for from you one will go forth for me to be a ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, his days of eternity. And so this is the verse that really prophesies the Messiah's arrival from Bethlehem. So he's born in Bethlehem, and that's where we get this prophecy here in Micah 5, 2. But the prophecy of the coming of Christ, really, if you pick it up in verses 4 and 5, now we get to the second coming. So verses 2 and 3 are the first coming, but 4 and 5 are the second coming. He will arise and and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in his majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will remain, because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. This one will be our peace. So again, we're continuing this theme of peace connected to the Messiah. Then chapter 6, if you just kind of scan your eyes over, chapter 6, we see God's indictment against Israel. And then in chapter 7, Israel really offers really one of two replies here. The second reply comes in chapter 7. Micah himself, again, context, Micah is standing there and he's looking out and he's seeing, he's beholding the sinful condition in Israel and he's bemoaning what he sees. All these prophets, most of all of their prophecy is just lament over the sinful condition of Israel, but yet also laced with that is the hope of the coming restoration. But we read about this in Micah 7. Woe is me, says Micah, for I am like the fruit pickers, like the grape gatherers. There is not a cluster of grapes to eat or a ripe fig which I crave The godly person has perished from the land, and there is no upright person among them. All of them lie in wait for bloodshed. Each of them hunts the other with a net. Concerning evil, both hands do it well. The prince asks also the judge for a bribe, and a great man speaks the desire of his soul, so they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar. The most upright is like a thorn hedge. The day when you post your watchman, your punishment will come. Then their confusion will occur. Do not trust a neighbor. Do not have confidence in a friend. From her who lies in your bosom, guard your lips. For son treats father contemptuously. Daughter rises up against her mother. Daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own household. 
Now, even though the Lord has promised to come, there is promise for the future, there still exists this inherent division between those who desire righteousness and the sinfulness that that people desire. And here, he's only seeing the sinfulness. He's only seeing the depraved condition of Israel. And in essence, that's the condition that Jesus is stepping into 700 years later, where the entire system from top to bottom, yes, there are individual righteous persons, but all, all around, there are, there are those who are committed to destruction, who are committed to sinfulness. And then we see Micah's pledge in verse 7, But as for me, as for me, I will watch expectantly for the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. So again, he's a righteous person looking for the Messiah to come. But the way of the Lord is always a lonely one. It's always lonely. Because the sinful world is just hell-bent on destruction. Even now, being a Christian in this context is difficult, isn't it? I mean, even, forget the, the political for a second. If, even if you're on one side of the fence politically, you're canceled. But if you say that I'm a Christian, you say I believe in Jesus Christ, I love Christ, I belong to Him, I've repented of my sins, and you should too, they will wipe you out in every possible way. It's always lonely being a believer. But verse 6, that's the the verse that Jesus quotes back in Matthew chapter 10. So flip back to Matthew 10 again. I want to get context for this. Matthew 10. Jesus really, he's invoking this verse. He certainly has the rest of the chapter in mind to describe the conditions of Israel at the present moment. But Jesus' arrival in Israel, this creates a rift. It's a rift. It's like when a person walks in the room and you can feel the tension and you know that half the room loves the guy, half the room hates him. And there's that tension, you can almost cut it like with a knife. That's what happens to the world when Jesus steps into the scene. But see, the very presence of Christ in Israel, now that he's here, there's nowhere to run and hide. They've been running from God for a long time, hundreds and hundreds of years. Well, when the Messiah comes, he'll make everything right. But until he gets here, we're going to do whatever we want. But now that he's here, you can't ignore him. You can't hide from him. You can't dismiss him. So what do you do? Here are your options now that Messiah has come. Even today, here's your options. You can either A, double down on your sinfulness and harden your heart against him. Or B, you can repent of your sin. You can confess Jesus as the Lord and Messiah and Savior and put your trust in him. There's only two options. There's no third way. Read the end of Matthew 7. Jesus doesn't give a third way. There's only two ways. And by the way, one is very, very narrow. Pretending like he doesn't exist or doesn't matter, that's option one. But ultimately, you will have to to reckon with that decision. And the fact that everyone must meet Jesus, either for salvation or judgment, that creates a natural divide between all people. It just does. Even if you don't want it to. And I'll tell you, popular evangelicalism does not want any semblance of visible division. Well, no, no, Jesus came to love everybody. You know, we're, we're just here to be nice and kind to people. Now, I'm not talking about, we're going to talk about Christian kindness in just a second, but I'm not talking about that. Jesus coming by the virtue of him even being here creates division. You can't ignore it. But Jesus says in verse 35 that he came to earth to divide people. 
He says it from his own mouth. But I want you to notice the divisions. He cites three divisions here. Starting in verse 35, he says, A man against his father. This is really, this touches the issue of loyalty. Loyalty. A man who usurps his father's rule. I mean, you, if, you're, if you're a young man, you stand up to your father in your, in your dad's house, what is he going to do to you? Really, it puts you against his rule, against his authority, and it effectively places you outside the family. You know, you, you tangle with mom and you're going to get an earful. You tangle with dad and he will say, pack your bags, you're gone. So there's a sense of loyalty here. There's a sense of identity with family. That's a man against his father. But then he says a daughter against her mother. It's similar here in terms of parental relationship, but there's some nuance here. Because normally we associate mothers with affection. Now I'm not saying moms can't be tough on you. But generally speaking, a motherly affection, a mother's uh, a relationship, is more of tenderness. Oftentimes, daughters and mothers have a sweet and nurturing, loving, even friendship. So to set a, a mother and a daughter against one another, now you're talking about inflicting a deep spiritual wound. There's a, there is a sense of a little bit of distance with a dad, but with a mom, it's a lot more personal. And then there's division between a daughter-in-law and a mother-in-law. Well, now Jesus is touching the realm of marriage and family. Now he's going to divide families and even marriage relationships. See, this statement is meant to function as an indicative marker of all relationships. All relationships. Now, it's important to see, again, Jesus never commands us to seek division. That's really important. We're not, we don't come here saying, all right, I'm, I'm going to go and make, make war with every single person I can. That's not our call. That's not our charge. We are not to seek division. Again, Matthew 5, 9, Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. So for, for you to go out and try to reconcile with other people, to apologize for your transgressions and your wrongdoings, to repent of your sin before God and before other people, to seek uh, restoration, to seek reconciliation, to humble yourself before other people, to put yourself below them, to win them to Christ, to restore them to Christ. You're seeking unity with people. And you're seeking to, to rescue lost people to the gospel, to Christ. So we don't seek division. Elsewhere, Romans 12, 18, the Apostle Paul says, if it is possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all people. Do your very best to be at peace with all people. Again, we don't seek Division. But when we confess Christ, and when we profess the gospel of Christ, and when we live in obedience to Christ, it will inevitably cause division. It just will. I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. I'm sorry, you will. I don't want people to, to reject me and say no to me. I'm sorry, they will. They will. Verse 36. A man's enemies will be the members of his household, even your own household. Now, Jesus knows what he's talking about here. Why? Because it happened to him. It happened to him. Mark 3, 21, Jesus' own family, they heard him teaching, and they saw the effect of his ministry. And the Bible says they sought to take custody of him for they were saying he has lost his senses. His own family thought he was crazy. And so what did they do? They tried to put him into house arrest. His own flesh and blood. 
said, Jesus, you've lost your mind. Why don't you come home for a little bit? We'll talk. That's what they were trying to do. Can you imagine that? His own family. John 7, Jesus was taunted by his own brothers. His brothers in verse 5, noting, it says, for not even, one of, not even his brothers were believing in him. Now we know from church history that many did come to believe in him as the Messiah, but we don't know if all of them did. But even during his ministry, his brothers were mocking him and taunting him. So he had no love from his family at all. And I want you to consider this. If Jesus' own family rejected him, how much more will unbelieving members of your family reject you when you say that you're going to follow him? We're not going to receive any better treatment on earth than Jesus did. Now, obviously, this creates conflict in us. Again, doesn't the Bible say, honor your father and mother? I don't want, I'm not looking to make trouble with my parents or my friends or my siblings or my spouse or my kids. Or, I'm not looking for trouble. I want to honor people. Yes, we are never to spurn our families. We do not dishonor our parents. However, there comes a point when you must decide, and here is where it all comes together. This is the point where you must decide, where is my allegiance? To whom do I really belong? Jesus is emphatic here. This is key for him. Our primary allegiance and love must be to him. Look at verse 37. Jesus continues, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. If there are family members, parents, children, even friends who who hold a higher place in your heart than Jesus he says that that renders you not worthy of him. The Greek word is axios. It means befitting. You're not fit to be his disciple. Jesus makes this point. This is a very strong point. And you might be listening to this and reading this and saying, boy, I don't know. There's a lot of other verses I really like in the Bible. This one's hard. I'm not going to put this one on my fridge or on my car. This is, this is difficult. It's hard to hear. Let me give you a harder one. Luke 14, 26, Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, we have to acknowledge, my friends, he is speaking hyperbolically here. He's not telling you to hate people, sort of universally. But in comparison to our allegiance to him, all other allegiances must seem like and be akin to hatred. He's saying that the division, the the contrast is so stark, so stark, that, that between us and the relationships in the world, the contrast is so, so wide and so stark, it's like love and hate. He's making the point emphatically and, and very decisively here. It's where you're willing to sever ties from friends and family and parents, and even spouses, if it means allegiance to Christ. For example, in 1 Corinthians 7.15, talks about marriage and family, teaches that if you have an unbelieving spouse, so you're a Christian and your spouse is not saved, is not a Christian, but if they agree to stay married to you, then Paul says, then stay with them and try to win them to Christ. So if you're in a marriage and your spouse is not saved, Do all you can to stay with them, work it out, and minister the gospel. Do not back down from the gospel, okay? 
So work hard to win them to Jesus and just pray fervently for them if they agree to stay with you. You know, it's fine you go to church. I'm not going to go to church with you. I don't really like all this religion stuff, but if that makes you happy, sweetheart, then please, by all means, do it. All right, I will. And I'm going to come back and say what the pastor said. But he says, if they stay with you, stay with them. Here's the thing, though. If they reject you and they reject Christ and they want out of the marriage because of that, he says, don't abandon your faith to save your marriage. He says, let them leave. Even if it costs a marriage, if they do not want to stay with you, if they hate everything you stand for in Christ Jesus, then let them go. Now, that, that is, that's the sword cutting you. At, it's at the very core of your being, isn't it? That's difficult. But it is better for your heart to be wedded to Christ than a person who hates the one who saved you. What we're talking about here is consecration. Consecration. What does it mean to be consecrated to the Lord? It means that you are set apart and specifically devoted to Jesus. It's where He takes you out of the world and brings you over and sets you in another place, in, a, in a, a sacred place, in a holy place, and used for His purposes. So when you became a Christian, you no longer belong to your family. You no longer belong to your friend group, or your culture, or your heritage, or even to your marriage. Now, do these things go away? No, they don't. You don't lose outward identity. But in becoming consecrated to Christ, He becomes your first love and your first allegiance, and your primary identity. I'm I'm Christ's first. Jesus has more to say here, as we're going to see in verses 38 and 39. But he's made this point with a thud. this This is serious business. Now you might say to yourself, I want to follow Christ, I want to confess Him, I love Jesus but I don't want to leave everything I have. I don't want to lose everything. My my friends and my family and my loved ones and all these people, they're important to me. Let me tell you, the disciples, they reasoned the same way. And it's interesting because in Mark 10, in Mark 10, we read about this. Just listen to this. Peter came to Jesus when he was talking about the exclusivity and the difficulty of coming into salvation and relationship with Him, Peter came to Him and said, Behold, we have left everything and followed You. There's more behind that, by the way. Peter's saying, Look, Lord, I have family who won't talk to me. I left a business. I left relationships. I left everything. We've left everything. We're outcasts from the temple. We're excommunicated. They don't want us. We've left everything and followed you. But Jesus says to them, Truly I say to you, there is not one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. See, many of you have lost friends and family when you became a Christian. You told them that you love Jesus, and at first they're like, all right, well, what do you mean by that? And then you tell them what that means. Some of you 
are the only Christians in your whole family and you feel utterly alone. I know many, many people, even in my own family, who are very alone in their faith. Very alone. But here's the good news to that. This is why Christ sanctifies and calls to Himself His bride. This is why the church exists, and this is why it matters, at least temporally, for us. Because we belong to Christ, and thereby, because we are members of one another, we belong to each other. See here, what's the commonality of those who confessed and and believe Christ and are members here in this assembly? What is the commonality? All of us have been called out of the world, out of our former life, out of our sinfulness, and we've been called together in honor and obedience and worship of Jesus Christ. We become family here. And it's in the, the church, the Christian church, that all of us love and adore Jesus Christ above all, and we're gathered together on, in one accord. For many of you, you will have closer relationships here in the assembly than you will with your own fr- friends and family. We are a body of Christ followers who are consecrated to Him. Consecrated, we're here for His purpose. God, whatever you would do with me in my lifetime, I belong to you. I love you more than anything or anyone else. And in that effort, we are called to maintain peace. We are called to maintain love here in the assembly. Unity, compassion, forbearance. We bear with each other as family. We speak truth in love to each other. We are together in sorrow. We are together in grief. We are together in joy. We are together in triumph. Yes, this is about Christ, this sermon, this text, but it also has implications for us as the body of Christ. For we are called to Him together. Why does church matter? Because let me tell you, for some of you, this is the only family you have. So you have to love each other. And you have to bear with each other. Weep with those who weep, mourn with those who mourn, laugh with those who laugh, rejoice with those who rejoice. We belong to each other. Why? Because we belong to Christ. Christ, my friends, is above all things. Above all. And for that, we are thankful. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful to you that you have called us, as the Bible says, out of darkness and into your marvelous light. You have transferred us, you've delivered us out of the kingdom of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of your beloved Son in whom we have the forgiveness of sins. We don't belong to the world anymore, Lord God. We don't even belong to our friends or our families or other familial groups or anything like that, Lord. We belong to you first and foremost. But Father, I want to plead with you because for so many of your people, This came at great cost. I think about even through church history, the Reformers, their allegiance to you came at great cost, even their own lives. And Lord, even people sitting here in this room, their love for you, their allegiance to you, their confession of you has come at great cost. But Lord, we also know that there's a blessing there, that you reward those who are faithful to you. And even, Father, if we have lost other family members and friends and groups 
we know that You will bring to us countless numbers of those who are joined to us through faith, who love You, who belong to You, and who are here for us as well. So Lord, thank You for Your bride. Thank You for this church, those who love You, those who are called to You, and set apart for You and consecrated to You. Father, I pray that we would endure with others, that we would encourage them in the faith, that You would give us the fortitude to stand for truth, but also the compassion to love others, Lord, and even more compassion to love those who don't yet know You. Those who You are drawing into this assembly, those who You are drawing to Yourself, help us, Lord, to endure hardship and suffer persecution, even though we might reach one. Help us, Lord, not to seek division and ostracize others from us, but help us to win them to Christ through our testimony, through the gospel, through our compassion. And Lord, above all things, help us to be faithful to you. And God, we must admit and confess that there are, there are days when in the moment our affections might not feel like they're completely for you. Where we, we might say, I love you, Lord, but I also love them a lot. And maybe there's a divided allegiance there. So Lord, as we enrich our hearts toward other people, as we boost our love for others, Lord, I pray that you would increase and intensify our genuine love for you. And if we find that we are struggling to love you, I pray that you would grant us the desires of our heart. We would increase our love for you and devotion to you. Thank you for your grace and mercy in reconciling us to yourself in calling us sons and daughters. What a tremendous honor it is to belong to you. Thank you for your grace and kindness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.